0: Today we find ourselves in the holy city of Jerusalem. You know, each and every year, hundreds upon thousands of people would journey to this holy place. They would come to the temple, they would come to offer sacrifices, to praise God or to pray to our heavenly Father. And along the way, they would experience some danger wrong turns, and they would counter trials and tribulations. You know, oftentimes we are on a similar journey, and we can experience those same kind of trials in our lives. Just like the wise men that came to this city that we're in right now, they came looking for a king, but they found a baby lying in a manger just a few cities away. Or the people of this town that were looking for a Messiah, but when it was right in front of their face, they couldn't even recognize it. Isn't that what the story of Christmas is all about? Twists and turns and unexpected endings. But the things that we can learn from this story is that we've gotta be vigilant. We've gotta be focused on every single stop that we come to. That things may not always appear as they seem. But most importantly, that our current location is not our final destination.
1: Well, good morning. Hope you guys are well. Can we give a hand to our video team and Pastor Jeff from our North Charleston campus? They did a great job on that video. The video team did a great job with all of the work they did for this series, uh, which if you haven't been with us, we are currently in a series called Journey to Bethlehem. It's a series where we're taking a look at some of the cities in Israel, cities that were significant leading up to Christmas. Christmas. And so today, we're gonna look at one more city, and that is the city of Jerusalem. And whenever I think about Jerusalem, I'm reminded of a story about an older couple who had always wanted to visit the city. They had been there once before when they were younger, but they'd always wanted to go back. This couple had been married for 55 years, a long time. And it was not the easiest of marriages because the husband was just that guy. He was grumpy, grumpy opinionated, moody. This is not the moment to make eye contact with your husbands, ladies. (laughs) But he was just that guy, just a grumpy old man, and so the marriage was not the easiest of marriages, but he was committed to it. And as they were getting along in years, they decided to pull the trigger and go for it and plan the trip to Jerusalem, so they did. They did, they got there, they had an amazing time visiting Jerusalem, touring some of the places that Jesus had walked. But while they were there, unfortunately, the husband became sick. And, and while he was sick, he actually passed away. And so as the wife was, re, was preparing to return to the States, the local coroner came to her and said, ma'am, I'm so sorry for your loss, but I hate to have to ask you to think about this. We just, we, there's one thing we need to settle. Regarding your husband's body, we can either bury him here for $150 or we can ship him home to you for $5,000. And immediately, without hesitating, she said, send him home to me. And the local coroner was kind of confused. He said, ma'am, are are you sure that's an awful lot of money? You sure that's what you wanna do? And she said, sir, a long time ago a man died here, and he was buried here, and he rose from the dead, and I'm just not willing to take that chance. You know, Jerusalem, it's a special place, right? It's a special place for obvious reasons. And it has some interesting relevance to us at Christmas time. But before, before we jump into all of that, why don't we take, I'll give you a minute to recover and we'll pray, okay? <laughs> Father, we are grateful, grateful for today and grateful for what we get to celebrate this time of year, that it is not just a story. That there is something in it for us that could potentially change the rest of our lives. So I pray for the time that we have here that you would help us to see whatever it is we need to see in order to better understand Christmas and what it means in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we talk about Jerusalem at Christmas time, I think we need to talk about some words that may sound like they have nothing to do with Christmas. Today I wanna talk about the words war worry, and worship, okay? War, worry, and worship. Now, some of you are thinking, now, that sounds like Christmas at my house. We get together and we fight, then we kind of worry about whose feelings we might have hurt, then we pile in the car and go to church and pretend like it never happened. Merry Christmas, home sweet home, right? But here's the thing. Jerusalem has a lot of significance within Christianity. We know this. As the place where Jesus died and rose again from the dead. It has huge significance within Christianity, but it also plays an interesting role in the Christmas story, even though it isn't actually mentioned until after the birth of Jesus. And so I wanna offer some backstory just to get us all on the same page real quick, okay? So Jerusalem, you may know this, Jerusalem is one of the oldest cities in the world. It is part of the land, it was part of the land that God promised to Moses. But Jerusalem was not a city of great significance until much later. In fact, when Joshua entered the promised land, Jerusalem really wasn't on his radar. It wasn't a city he showed much interest in. In fact, the first city he conquered was a city called Jericho. Remember, he walked around it seven times? And the next city he conquered wasn't Jerusalem, it was a city called Ai. And after seeing what happened to these two cities, There were a few kings in the area who decided, we can't let this continue. So they chose to pool their resources and try to put an end to what Joshua was doing, taking over land in what had been promised to them. So these five kings of of relatively large cities come together, deciding to once and for all subdue the emerging nation of Israel. And they attacked Joshua. They attacked Joshua and the nation of Israel. The only problem was They lost, they lost that battle. And so Joshua ended up acquiring their cities too. And one of the kings of those five cities was the king of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was acquired by Israel because five kings picked a fight with Joshua 1400 years before Jesus and they lost. But Jerusalem was still not that big a deal until about 300 years later when King David decided to build a temple in Jerusalem. And once Israel had a temple in Jerusalem, it became the spiritual epicenter for that nation. But it also marked a new period for Jerusalem, a period when it would become one of the most fought-over pieces of land on the planet. In fact, from that time until today, from then until now, Jerusalem has been conquered More than 50 times. It's been captured and recaptured more than 40 times, and it's been completely destroyed twice. The irony of all this is that the name Jerusalem, it's made up of two words, Jeru, meaning city, and Silem, which is a variation of the Hebrew word shalom. So this is literally the word Jerusalem means city of peace but it has been anything but that for thousands of years. In fact, it's been one of the most war-torn cities in the world. Now, I'm sure you would all agree with me that unfortunately in our modern history that there have been, there's been a great deal of violence. A lot of things have happened that could only be interpreted as declarations of war direct and overt actions that could only be interpreted that way. Let me show you what I'm talking about. This is a picture, it's a rendering actually of the Boston Tea Party. Some of you may remember this. This happened at a time when the, is there something funny about it? (laughs) Not that old, okay. Well, if you remember this, okay, so if you don't, this is the Boston Tea Party. So, This happened when the colonists were not happy about the way they were being taxed. So they decided to jump on one of the ships and dump a bunch of English tea into the Boston Harbor. Great Britain didn't much like that. So not long thereafter, the colonists found themselves in the middle of a Revolutionary War. Let me show you another one. This is a picture of the USS Arizona after it was bombed in Pearl Harbor. A direct overt action that could only be interpreted as a declaration of war. Several other vessels were bombed around the same time and pretty soon thereafter, the U.S. found itself in the middle of World War II. Let me show you another one that you'll all recognize. This is, these are the Twin Towers when they were maliciously attacked by Al-Qaeda, something that we could only interpret as a declaration of war. And within days of this, the U.S. found itself leading the war on terror. let me show you one more. Well, that doesn't seem right. That's not what you were expecting, is it? What in the world does the birth of Jesus have to do with war? Let me say it to you this way. The birth of Jesus was the most profound declaration of war that the world has ever seen. The birth of Jesus was the most profound declaration of war that the world has ever seen. I know it may not seem like it, but consider the implications of Christmas. Consider what God did through the birth of Jesus. It was at this point in history that God said, enough, enough. He didn't say it aggressively. He didn't say it angrily, but he did say it definitively. With the birth of Jesus, God declared war on sin. God declared war on our fear. God declared war on our shame. God declared war on our rebellious nature. He declared war on everything that has ever or would ever rob us of the freedom that we were made to live in. With the birth of Jesus, God put into motion his plan to set us free. But that price for freedom would be paid with a war between good and evil. Now the outcome, the outcome of the war was never once in question because God is preeminent and transcendent and omnipotent in a whole bunch of other theological words that mean God is and has been and will forever be above all and there is no power that can rival him. Because of that, The outcome of the war was never in question. It would end in victory, but victory always comes with a price, and God would be willing to pay that price with his very own son. Luke was right when he said, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior is born. The birth of Jesus was really good news because it was a declaration of war against the sin that separated us from God. But it was not great news for everybody. It was not great news for everybody. In fact, there were some people in Jerusalem who were very worried about the news of Jesus's birth. Now, I don't know what role worry plays in your life, but for most of us, worry plays a far bigger role in our lives than we would like for it to, right? And honestly, it's quite useless in helping us solve any of our problems. Nonetheless, still a big part of our lives. Somebody said one time that worry is like a rocking chair. It'll give you something to do, but it won't get you anywhere. Let me paint a picture for you. Let me paint a picture just to show you what I'm talking about. Several years ago, I remember I was sitting on the couch working on my laptop one night and Dana had been out with some friends. And so she got home and she came in. I said, hey babe, how was it? She said, good. She came and she sat down on the couch facing me. Now I'm no dummy. I knew it was time to talk about something. (laughs) So I took my laptop and I set it to the side and I said, what's up? And she looked at me and she said, do you have something to tell me? How many of you have ever gotten that question? That's a terrifying moment, right? So immediately my mind started racing and I began to worry about what I hadn't told her. And after some stuttering, I think I responded with something like, I'm not sure what you mean, which is a great thing to say if you're trying to keep your options open, by the way. And she looked at me again and said, are you sure there's nothing you need to tell me? Well, now I'm really worried because clearly whatever I haven't told her, she already knows. She's just trying to get me to admit to it. So now my mind is really firing, trying to recall what horrible thing I had done and forgotten to tell her about. I had no idea what it was, but I was preparing to apologize for everything I had ever done for all of my life. And so... I looked at her and I said, I don't know what I've done, but I am so, so sorry for it. And she looked at me and she said, okay, well I have something to tell you. Wait, what? She said, I got a speeding ticket on my way home and I'm really sorry. She was just trying to get some leverage on me before she dropped the news of her ticket. And then she looked at me and she said, are you angry? And I wasn't. I was delighted. (laughs) She was excited because she wasn't in trouble. I was excited because I wasn't in trouble. Win-win. Well played, Dana. Well played. (laughs) Well, in Jerusalem, at the time of Jesus' birth, there were some people who were worried, very worried. But unlike me, I think they had good reason to be. So here's how Matthew records the story. He says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So from Matthew's account, we can see that not everybody was excited about Jesus' birth. There were three specific people or groups of people here that we need to look at. There there was Herod, there were the chief priests or teachers of the law, and then there were the magi or the wise men, right? And so each of them has a very interesting response to Jesus' birth. Let's, Let's start with Herod. We'll look at him first. Herod was appointed by Rome as the king of Judah, and that included Jerusalem. Herod was a ruthless military leader, but he was an even better developer. And with the financial backing of Rome, Herod began to build his kingdom. This is one of the reasons that he was known as Herod the Great, because in and around Jerusalem, Herod did things like build fortresses and aqueducts and theaters. He did things architecturally that at that time no one had ever thought about doing. And so With his building efforts, Jerusalem became more prosperous and affluent. But Herod was Herod the Great for other reasons as well. In fact, he was quietly referred to as Herod the Horrible. Herod was brutally cruel. Sounds like a really bad children's book, Herod the Horrible. He earned the name because of his cruelty and despite his power, and authority as king, he was deeply insecure and sometimes even paranoid. At one point, he became afraid that his wife, his mother-in-law, and two of his sons were conspiring against them, so he decided to have them publicly executed to instill fear in anyone who might challenge him. And it was to this guy that the wise men roll up and say, hey, where is the king of the Jews? Well, that would have worried Herod a little bit because he was the king of the Jews. How many of you know when you're the king, you don't want to hear about another king in your kingdom? Imagine how this would have sounded to Herod. These guys roll up and say, where is the king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. Herod would have thought, well, that would be me. No, we mean the, the king of the Jews. No, that would still be me. No, sorry, we're talking about the other guy, the real king of the Jews. This would have freaked Herod out a little bit. For Herod, the first response to Jesus' birth was not joy, it was fear. It was fear, he was threatened. Herod was worried about the idea of another king who might challenge his authority. But there was another group of people in Matthew's story that had kind of a similar reaction it says this, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together the chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. So Herod gets the news and he immediately calls in the chief priests. Now the chief priests were the appointed leaders, the religious leaders for the Jewish people. And somehow they had, they had also expanded their authority into politics as well. So they had a pretty, they had a significant amount of power. And these guys, these chief priests, considered themselves uh, better than, like they looked at themselves as though they had climbed some moral high ground and, and had a, a moral authority over everyone around them, not just Jewish people, but also non-Jewish people. And so that position If there's a new king, that position becomes threatened. And so in their minds, they weren't gonna allow anything to threaten that. They weren't gonna allow anything to change that. So they answer Herod's question with the words from the prophet Micah, because they would have been very familiar with all of the prophecies about the Messiah. But while they knew everything about the Messiah, while they had all of the information, their pride caused them to miss it. They missed the fulfillment of the prophecy they had spent their lives waiting on. And here's why this is important for us. Because here we are at the peak of another Christmas season. And the question that we may need to answer is this. Are we going to meet this new king or are we going to miss him? Both Herod and the chief priests missed Jesus. Herod missed him because of fear, and the chief priests missed him because of pride. And can I tell you, they were worried about what Jesus might change in their lives, and I think they may have been right. I think they may have been right. Many years ago, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's a, a children's story that was written to parallel the gospel. And in it, there is a lion named Aslan who represents Jesus. There's also a little girl named Susan who isn't very familiar with Aslan. She's heard fascinating things about him and wants to know more. But she's also a little bit afraid. And so she meets a couple of beavers again, this is a children's story, who help her understand more about Aslan. Susan asks, what kind of man is Aslan? Mrs. Beaver replies, Aslan a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the woods and the son of the great emperor. Don't you know Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion? Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Is he safe? Safe, said Mrs. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. If we wanna take the Christmas story seriously, then we must not only celebrate the arrival of a savior. We must recognize the arrival of a new king. And this is what can make the Christmas story a little challenging for us. Because if a new king has arrived, then the old king must step down. For the true king to take the throne that belongs to him, then it is time for the old king's reign to come to an end. And if you're not picking up on it by now, I'm not talking about Herod anymore. You and I are the old king that must step down. In order for the true king to take his throne in our lives, we must be willing to surrender our rule. Only then can he lead us into the life we were made to live. Tony Evans says it this way, receiving him as our savior may get us into heaven. But submitting to him as Lord gets heaven into us. Of course, Herod was worried. Of course, the chief priests were worried. Because in a kingdom, there can only be one king. And if we're honest, maybe even we are a little bit worried. Because a new king could change everything, he could turn everything upside down. But is it possible? That's exactly what we need. Is it possible? that's when life may begin to make the most sense. When it is surrendered to the one who created it. When it is given back to the one who waged a war to redeem it. And that leads us to our final group of people in this story. That's the wise men or the magi. And Matthew tells us, they they had a very different response to the birth of Jesus. And in Matthew's record of it, He says that they arrive before Herod with a single question. Where is the king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. Now, our our cultural context for this idea of worship is what we do when we sing songs in church, right? That's what comes to mind when we think of worship. And that's certainly one expression of worship. But I think worship is so much bigger than that because worship is a reflection of what's going on here, what's going on inside of us. I don't think that the wise men rolled up to the manger, got themselves in a line, cleared their throats and did this. And then belted it out. There may have been singing. I wouldn't be surprised. I bet there was some singing. I bet there was a Chick-fil-A platter and some sweet tea because this was a party. They were excited to be there. But worship is so much bigger than that because worship is a reflection of what's going on in here. Let me explain what I'm talking about. How many of you have a dog? Anybody have a dog? Raise your hands high. Good. And of those, how many of you have noticed that your dog likes to lick your hand? Raise your hands. Don't be shy. Great. Now take your hand and touch your neighbor with it. (laughs) If you just did that and you don't know your neighbor, it just got real weird. The whole row is feeling it. Let me tell you why I'm saying that. The wise men said they had come to worship this new king. And the word for worship that Matthew uses here is the Greek word proskuneo. Now, the Greek language has always been more pictorial than our English language, all right? So it it references a picture here that will surprise you, because the, the word that is referenced in that Greek word, I mean, excuse me, the picture that is referenced in that Greek word is that of a dog licking its master's hand. Here's why that's interesting. This, this is the kind of thing that blows my mind. 2,000 years ago, Matthew wrote this. He had no way of knowing what the research now tells us about a dog licking his master's hand. But research now shows us that when a dog licks his master's hand, it's not just because you may have eaten a basket of ribs. It's more often because they're trying to communicate something to you. They're trying to tell you something. They're communicating Respect, recognizing that you are the alpha in the relationship. They're communicating appreciation, understanding that you are the one who cares and provides for them. They're communicating trust. They're communicating affection. Now, I know you're thinking, how do you know all this? It's a dog. You can't ask it a question. We know it because scientists can study the neurological activity that occurs when, in a dog's brain, when he licks his master's hand, and when that happens, dopamine and endorphins—the same feel-good chemicals that flood that are in our bodies—they flood the dog's brain. What I'm saying here is this: the recognition of who you are in the relationship and who they are in the relationship is good for the dog. It creates a sense of peace and security for them. It realigns the dog's sense of identity that he belongs to his master. Worship does the very same thing in us. That's why it's so important. It realigns our identity and purpose. When we focus on him, we become more aware of who we are and who we were meant to be. And that creates a sense of peace in us. Let me tell you how this this whole deal played out in my own life. I'll I'll disclaim it with this. I'm not proud of this story. That's true, but I feel like we're family, so I can share it. Um, When I was 16 years old, I heard the gospel for the very first time. I'd never heard it before then, and it just kind of blew. I mean, I knew some random things about God, but I never heard the gospel the way I did at 16 years old, and it blew my mind, blew me away. That God loved me enough to die in my place so that I could have a relationship with him. Just blew me away. But there was this war inside of me. This war going on inside of me. I was so afraid of what following God would cost me. So for about a year, I rode a fence with one foot in this circle of Christian friends that I had met and another with this group of degenerate surfers that I had hung out with forever. And I know that surfers don't like that stereotype, but I've been in it my whole life, I've seen too much. So, it was just this exhausting balance for me. And I was struggling to really understand who I was, but I was just too afraid to commit my life to God. Until one night, when I was hanging out with some of my not so great surfer friends, and we decided to sneak out, sneak out later on that night. So it was me and three other friends, and one of them decided to raid his father's liquor cabinet. And so I don't, I still, I don't even know I was there. Like, I, I didn't like drinking. These friends drove me crazy. Uh, I was just so insecure and didn't know who I was. Yet here I was driving around three very drunk friends. And although I had not been drinking, you can imagine the level of chaos in the car I was driving. And then it happened. Then it happened. Up until that point, I had asked God to show me what to do about this fence that I was riding. I had asked him to help me make the right decision. And in the fraction of one second, he did. He did. I never saw the man until he was right in front of me. A pedestrian darted across the street and although I slammed on the brakes, it didn't matter. I hit him. He flew up over my car and landed on the sidewalk. Immediately I pulled over, ran out to see if he was okay. He was bleeding and unconscious on the sidewalk. At this point, my friends, the ones who were with me, were terrified of getting caught because they were hammered. So they left. They left me standing there. They fled the scene and left all of their alcohol in my car. And so the police arrived to find this now 17 year old kid with a bag full of alcohol in his car and a man lying on the pavement. Not great. So the paramedics came, and they took him to the hospital. Of course they did all the sobriety tests, and they determined I was fine, but there was still the matter of this man on the pavement. And so I got to follow behind the ambulance in a police car. You know, a little boy's dream of riding in police cars? It's a very different dream. So we, we waited at the hospital for what felt like forever to determine how I would be charged. It turned out that the man had a concussion and a sprained ankle, which was a miracle. He was apparently off the charts drunk, which made him limber, and I'm told that helped, given the circumstances. He was also in the military and didn't wanna face the charge of being public, publicly intoxicated. And so no, because that would have hurt his career. So no charges were pressed against me. I was given a ticket and I went and slept in my own bed that night. I had been asking God to show me something. And he did. In In a split second, he showed me the path I was on and where it was going. He showed me the friends that I was so afraid to lose and just how committed they were to me. He also showed me that he had a different way. And although I knew it would cost me everything, I knew it was the only way. And so it was in that season that I finally surrendered to him. I knew that he could no longer just be my savior. He would also need to be my king. I needed to step down from the throne of my life and let him lead me. In that split second, God allowed me to see what I had been asking to see for a long time. Yes, I had some newfound clarity on where my my path was going and the friends that I was so afraid to lose, but more than that, I was finally able to see Jesus for who he really was and for who he still is today. He is the king who came to seek and save the lost, even when the lost weren't seeking him. He is the king who came to reclaim what already belonged to him, even though I didn't recognize myself as his son. He is the king who came to set us free. For the wise men, worship was a relational concept. It defined how they related to Jesus. To them, he was the king, and they were going to follow him. When they said, we have come to worship him, they were saying, we have come to pay our respects. We have come to acknowledge who he is, regardless of what Herod or the chief priests or the rest of the world might say. We have come to say that we believe he is the promised king who will save his people from their sins. For these wise men, worship was an act of surrender, something that had already taken place in their lives. I think Herod and the chief priests were right to be worried. Jesus did come to change everything. At his birth, a war was declared against the sin and shame and guilt that separated us from God. And at his death, God would make it clear that the, the outcome of that war was never once in question. In the most astounding picture of mercy and love the world has ever seen, God bought our freedom through the life of his very own son, this baby we get to celebrate. The question that we have to deal with at Christmas is this, are we going to miss him out of fear or out of pride or are we going to meet him by surrendering in worship? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful. We are thankful that you relentlessly pursue us. You reach into the lowest places to pull us out. And God, we pray that you will help us to continue to see whatever it is we need to see, that we would become ready to surrender all to you, that you might be not just our savior, but also our king. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.